Let me welcome all of those who are worshiping with us this morning by way of live streaming and also over in our Rejoice service that has resumed for the balance of the summer. Uh, we're glad that you are part of our church family and look forward to serving with you here at First Presbyterian Church. Our next lesson is uh, from the book of Judges. We are making our way through chapters 6 through 8, uh, studying the life of Gideon and what we might discern for our lives from his life and his experiences so long ago. Let us listen for the Word of God. This is verses 33 through 40 in Judges, the sixth chapter. Then all of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and crossing the Jordan, they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, I am going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me. Let me speak one more time. Let me please make trial with the fleece just once more. Let it be dry only on the fleece, and all around on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so we return this morning to the life and times of Gideon in an effort to try to see what God might reveal to us from the life of Gideon so long ago. Gideon was one of the judges. Just briefly, if you were not here last week, the judges ruled in Israel after the tribes occupied the land and before there was a king in the land. <laughs> if you want to impress your Baptist and Methodist Episcopalian friends, you can tell them this was in the time of the tribal Amphictyony. So that sounds real impressive. But that's what the, you, it is called in the biblical studies, the tribal Amphictyony. Every tribe kind of governed itself. But the whole land was dependent upon these judges that were raised up. And they were not judges in the sense that we think of judges today who serve, you know, in courts and judicial functions. The judges of Israel were more like military leaders, charismatic people that were raised up in a time of threat to deliver Israel when they were challenged by one of the peoples, uh, one of the neighboring lands around them. And I told you a, a way that you can remember the outline of every story in the book of Judges. If you have your Bible with you, open to the Judges, maybe just at the introduction to Judges, and draw a circle, put five S's around that circle, and this is the cycle, the people's sin. That's the first S, usually by worshiping one of the gods of the land that God had told them not to worship. Following their sin, they become enslaved. They're captured or ruled over by one of these nomadic tribes or one of these neighboring nations. 
Then there is supplication. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And God raises up one of these judges, a man like Gideon or Samson or Othniel. We can read Othniel's story in chapter 3. Just in verses 7 through 11, it goes through all five S's. So they sin. They are enslaved. There's supplication where they ask for God's deliverance. God raises up the, the judge and saves the people. So the fourth S is salvation. And then there's a time of silence. And usually it says something to the effect there was peace or silence in the land. There was rest in the land for 30, 40 years. The next verse goes right into sin again. The people sin by worshiping one of the gods of the land. So this repeats itself ad nauseum throughout uh, the book of Judges. Now, we really don't believe in cyclical history, but we do agree with that Presbyterian Mark Twain who said, history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. So you, you can see things that are familiar in the story of Israel and familiar in our own life and times. So, as we saw last week, Gideon has a very difficult time believing that God has called a man such as himself to be the deliverer of Israel. The angel appears to him beneath the oak at Ophrah and says in words that must have startled Gideon, the Lord is with you, which he couldn't believe because of their plight. You are a mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Two things that just blew Gideon's mind because he did not think that God was with him, nor did he think of himself as a mighty warrior. Gideon's problem was that he saw himself only in terms of what he had been in the past. But when God looked at Gideon, he saw his capacity to be the deliverer if he relied upon the Lord for that deliverance. Still unconvinced, we come to our story today. Now remember there was a test in last week's lesson too. Just to make sure this was really an angel from the Lord and this message was from the Lord, he had put out the cakes and the broth and the angel burned them. You would have thought at that point that Gideon was convinced this was a message from the Lord, but no, he's not convinced. So today we get into what's called the fleece test. In order to be convinced himself that God wanted him to be Israel's deliverer, despite the fact that he was from the smallest clan and the, uh, and the weak, weakest family in that clan, and he was the least important member of his own family, he says, Lord, if uh, th you really want me to do this, then let's just, uh, I'll lay a fleece out on the ground. If the fleece is wet tomorrow morning and all the ground around it is, is dry, then I will know that you're calling me to do this. And so it happened. The fleece was wet, the ground was dry. Scriptures say, say he rang a, a bowl full of water out of the fleece. I think that's where we get the expression wringing wet. It comes from this uh, part of Scripture. So he rang a bowl of water out of the fleece. Convinced? No. So he said, let me just prevail upon you one more time, Lord, if you would. Tomorrow, let the fleece be dry and all around dew on the ground, a wetness on the ground. And it was so. A fascinating story. The fleece test. 17th century mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal, better known, best known for his statement, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every individual that can be filled by no other. That same Blaise Pascal kept a notebook, a daily notebook, and frequently in his notebook he would write in the margins, Gideon's fleece. So he was fascinated by this story, but we wonder what he thought about it. Because he doesn't talk about that story in his writings. But in his margins, Gideon's fleece is mentioned time and time again. 
This is certainly a story that's full of surprises. It's surprising in the first place that Gideon dared to challenge God, to make him prove that he was really calling him to be Israel's deliverer. But as surprising as that was, it was even more surprising that he tested him a second time, asking that the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. But more surprising than either of those is the fact that God, Almighty God, consented to this test. Because that is not God's modus operandi, if you will, throughout the scriptures when people ask him or want him to prove something. So I'd like to use this story this morning as a backdrop against which to discuss this question. How can we be certain of anything in the religious sphere? How can we really be sure that God guides us, that God loves us, that God forgives us? How can we be convinced of God's will for our own lives? How can we be convinced of the truth, the veracity of some aspect of God's Word. Have you never once wanted to test God yourself when you had to make a major decision in your life? Don't you long to have some means, some way that you can demonstrate with incontrovertible evidence that this is what God wants you to be or to do? Many people through the ages have thought that if only God would come down and and do a miracle doesn't have to be a big miracle, Lord. It could be a small miracle. You don't have to turn the Cape Fear River into blood, but just uh, turn this water a, shy, a slight shade of pink. That would convince me that you wanted me to do whatever it is I'm thinking of, of doing. But is this really true? Would that convince us? Is it possible? What can we know for certain? Epistemology is that branch of philosophy that studies knowledge and how to distinguish true knowledge from false knowledge. More specifically in theological circles, this is referred to as theological verification. How can we verify any theological assertion? God wants me to serve him. God loves me. God forgives me. It's better to give than to receive. Honesty is the best policy. You see, it is my personal conviction and also my reading of Scripture that what we believe in many, if not all cases, especially in the religious arena, has more to do with our inner faith, which is a gift, than it does with external evidence or proof. This is an ancient debate in theological circles. St. Thomas Aquinas argued that one understands and therefore believes. That it's one's reasoning capacities, his intelligent grasp of the evidence that leads to faith. St. Augustine, on the other hand, argued that one believes and then is able to understand. Presbyterians, on the whole, have sided with Augustine on this matter. And I'm convinced it has the greater support of Scripture. Most people by nature believe what they choose to believe. What they want to believe. Not necessarily what the evidence suggests. Evidence in the religious sphere, after all, is subject to all different kinds of interpretations. 
And we read into the evidence so often, each and every one of us does this, consciously or unconsciously, what we choose to believe, what we want to believe, and therefore we decide this is what it's saying. In the parable that Lane read to us this morning, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the repentant rich man asked Father Abraham if he could go back or perhaps he could send Lazarus back to appeal to his brothers who were still living as he was living before he was condemned to this place of torment. And he says to Father Abraham, they will believe if someone comes back to the dead, from the dead. And Jesus has Father Abraham saying, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe as a result of that, they will not believe even should someone come back from the dead. Probably a, re a reference to his own upcoming resurrection. Did the resurrection prove anything to those who chose not to believe it? I don't think so. They weren't open to the possibility of resurrection. So many people were not. After all, even the scripture suggests that there were different theories about what happened. Oh, Jesus wasn't really dead. He was just feigning death. He had passed out. Oh, it was a hoax. His disciples came and stole his body and lied about it later. We read that even some of his own disciples couldn't believe their own eyes what they were seeing and hearing when he appeared to them. They thought it was an idle tale. How could they believe that? Our eyes often deceive us. What we think we see, we don't see. And even if we do see something that looks different, we have a different interpretation of what actually happened. Don't we? Frequently in our Lord's ministry, the Pharisees and Sadducees would challenge him and say, well, just perform a miracle or two and then we will believe. We need some kind of divine confirmation that you really are the Messiah. And he never would consent to that. And then when he did do a miracle or two, what happened? They would attribute his power to Satan. Oh, he's from the devil. He's not from God. So there's no way that he could prove his divinity or prove the veracity of his will for them. To those who were unwilling to believe, who refused to choose to take the risk of faith. Evidence of God and of God's will is available, therefore, only to those who believe, who obey, and not to those who choose to disbelieve. Evidence does not necessarily lead to faith, but faith enables us to grasp and appropriate the evidence. And so it is, at least I believe, that we believe in order to understand. We don't understand in order to believe. That is what I believe the story of Gideon and his fleece test is telling us. Let me illustrate this with a rather crude analogy. How can a man prove to his wife that he loves her? Or can a wife prove to her husband that she loves him? Is there any incontrovertible way that we can demonstrate that? I love my wife. If my wife believes I love her, then when I'm doing a loving act, then it only confirms what she suspects or believes. And if I do something on rare occasion that is not very loving, she said, well, I, he was having a bad day. That was an, anom an anomaly. anomaly, easy for me to say, right? 
So she interprets the evidence in light of what she has chosen to believe. On the other hand, if she believes she's not loved, and I do something that's unloving, it only confirms what she already knows. And if I do something that is loving, that contradicts the fact that I don't love her, then she's thinking, oh, he's up to something. He has an ulterior motive here. (laughs) Yeah, that's not love. That's manipulation. Well, maybe that analogy is not helpful to you, but what I'm trying to say is that in our walk with God, we have to make a choice. We're often called the chosen people. But even the chosen have to choose. We either take the risk of faith or we do not. We either believe God and take God at his word and begin to act on the basis of that belief or we do not. But in either case, we believe what we have decided to believe. Basil Mitchell, the late philosopher of religion at Oxford, wrote several parables, but One of his parables is called The Stranger. And he's dealing with this issue of theological verification. Listen to his parable. In a time of war in an occupied country, a member of the resistance meets one night a stranger who deeply impresses him. They spend that night together in conversation. The stranger tells the partisan that he himself is on the side of the resistance. Indeed, that he is in charge of it in command of it, and he urges the partisan to have faith in him no matter what happens. The partisan is utterly convinced at the meeting of the stranger's sincerity and consistency, and he undertakes to trust him. They never meet in conditions of intimacy again. But sometimes the stranger is seen helping the members of the resistance, and the partisan is grateful, and he says to his friends, he is on our side. Sometimes he is seen in the uniform of the police, handing over patriots to the occupying powers. On these occasions, his friends murmur against him, but the partisan still says, he is on our side. He believes that in spite of appearances, the stranger did not deceive him. Sometimes he asks the stranger for help, and he receives it. He is then thankful. Sometimes he asks, and he does not receive it. And then he says, the stranger knows best. Sometimes his friends, in exasperation, say, well, what would he have to do for you to admit that you were wrong and that he is not on our side? The partisan refuses to answer. He will not consent to put the stranger to the test. And sometimes his friends complain, well, if that's what you mean by his being on our side, the sooner he goes over to the other side, the better. The partisan of the parable does not allow anything to count decisively against the proposition the stranger is on our side. This is because he has committed himself to the stranger. But he, of course, recognizes that the stranger's ambiguous behavior does count against what he believes about him. And it is precisely this situation which constitutes the trial of his faith. Let me ask you, did the fleece test convict Gideon of anything? I don't think so. When was it that Gideon became convinced or chose to believe 
that God was going to deliver Israel by his hand. God's angel had already miraculously consumed the meat and the cakes earlier, as we read last week. The first fleece test was the fleece was wringing wet while the dry was the ground was dry, and in the next test the fleece was dry and the ground was wet. But after each test, Gideon was still unconvinced that he was the chosen person to deliver Israel. True. Eventually he got up and went out to do what God was asking him to do. But it may have been that he didn't have the the guts to challenge him one more time. We're never told that he was convinced. It was only when when he began to obey and went out trusting that God's word was accurate that he discovered that it was. Gideon is not finished yet with his moments of doubt and questioning. But it was only when he took the Lord at his word and began to act on it that he discovered the truth of what the angel was saying to him. Like Gideon, you and I are sometimes tempted to believe that only if the Lord would come down with a little miracle or two, then we would believe and we would follow and we would love and we would forgive and we would give and we would trust. But we may be deceiving ourselves. Faith is not the result of the evidence. Rather, faith is the prerequisite for seeing the evidence. The Bible tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. We were reminded in our call to worship this morning, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. In closing, let me say that this whole business of believing prior to having convincing evidence must seem like foolishness to most of the world. It certainly goes against the grain of our culture. And frankly, we must admit it is foolishness to some degree. It is what we call the folly of the gospel. And thus it makes it incumbent upon all of us to venture out, to choose to be people of faith and obedience, to dare to believe that God loves us and forgives us and is expecting us weak and mortal people to serve his purposes in this and all places But only if you choose to believe that this is so, will you discover it to be so, as it will be confirmed in your acts of discipleship. And if you are waiting personally for convincing proof before you ever engage in the risk of discipleship, then you will wait forever. Let me close now with these words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians, which could serve almost as a summary of today's message. For God in his wisdom made it impossible for people to know him by means of their own wisdom. Instead, by means of the so-called foolish message we preach, God decided to save those who believe. Jews want miracles for proof. Greeks look for wisdom. As for us, we proclaim the crucified Christ, a message that is offensive to the Jews and nonsense to the Gentiles, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, this message is Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For what seems to be God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and what seems to be God's weakness is stronger than human strength. 
Let us pray. Eternal God, you have told us in your word that it is not the hearers of the word, but the doers who are justified in your sight. And so we ask that as we prepare to bring our worship to a close and go forth hence, that we will do so with earnest and steadfast resolution, with quickened zeal and a renewed devotion to your service. And if any word of yours has reached us this morning, if any ray of light has shone upon us, if any righteous purpose has arisen within us, may we be found faithful to what we have received so that all of our thoughts and actions may henceforth be more in harmony with your will for us. Let your blessing rest upon us and all those who choose to believe in you and bless our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.